Hey, this is David McCall, host of the QTS Experience Podcast. And this week's podcast is really interesting. I have been very curious to know not just how music is made, but specifically how technology is affecting the creation of music, the distribution of music. Are artists' rights protected? And are they earning royalties? Are they being paid what they should be paid? I reached out to two friends of mine, Jeremy Gilbertson and Tim Huffman, who have both been on the show before. Tim is a Grammy-nominated musician. He's been in business, in the data center business and the technology business for well over 20 years. He's wildly successful. And Jeremy Gilbertson also comes from a technology background. He's been an instructor at high-level academia institutions. He has led blockchain efforts in the area of music. He's an award-winning producer in Netflix shows. Both of these guys are highly qualified and good friends of mine and great musicians. I invited them in to have a conversation about how all of this is going to work, how it's being affected, and what's the future of it. I think you'll love the conversation and their perspective. So join us on the next QTS Experience. The most valuable commodity on earth today is data, how we make it, use it, move it, and protect it. My name's David McCall. Join me today for the QTS Experience. Three, two, one. Jeremy, Tim, welcome to the QTS Experience. Good to be with you, pal. Good day, sir. Um, so you guys look fantastic. I've known both of you for a long time, and this is really kind of a vulgar display fantastic. of power. I wouldn't power. anything except my body and my face. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> well, you do have a face for radio. That's, uh, that's true. It's pretty amazing. Um, thanks for coming in today. I invited you guys in to talk about um, music. You're both... Um, well-credentialed musicians and enthusiasts, and then the intersection of music and technology. Before we dive into that, why don't you guys introduce yourselves a little bit? Um, you've both been on the show, uh, show in different roles before, talking specifically about technology and what you do today, but um, why don't you just give everybody a refresher? Jeremy? I'll let Tim go first. That way I can copy him. All right. Tim. Oh, this is great to be with you, Dave, and great to be with Jeremy. We've known each other a long time, and he's such an awesome guy and a talented person. Um, so t I'm Tim Huffman and um, began a career in music and, and wrote it really hard for 20 years and loved it and still do it uh, more opportunistically. Mm -hmm. But my primary efforts today, other than writing and recording, are I'm, I'm in the data center business. And so I help clients buy them, sell them, lease them, fund them, you know, all of those, anything that has to do with the technical building um, that, that's what my team and I do, uh, and I'm under the, the CBRE umbrella. Okay, perfect. Um, being a little modest, there's a Grammy nomination on the wall at home and a few other things, but um, yes, yes. Jeremy. you got to coax that out of him. Well, we're going to coax. We're going to coax throughout the thing. Yeah. Uh, my name's Jeremy Gilbertson. I've been here before. Thanks for having me again. Mm -hmm. I'm excited to uh, be here with Tim. Uh, Tim and I have... Uh, really cool history actually one of the early stops on my musical journey was in his uh small closet <laughs> teaching facility at music brokers in roswell uh, tim was my guitar instructor many 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 moons ago um but uh, my background i've been in music and tech for quite a while i've been on the data center side of the fence i've been in the music production side of the fence for music, film, and television. I've got a company called Tune Welders that does a lot of that work. 
do a lot of consulting in the music and brand space, so partnering with brands to figure out how to use music effectively, authentically. Mm. And most recently, I've been, I guess for the past year and change, been in the blockchain space with the NFT and metaverse kind of mm. kind of consulting. So it's it's been a it's been an interesting ride. You guys got such an eclectic background. Um, Tim, it's probably a year or two now. It's at least a year. I think it's been over two years where one day you were sharing the story of, Jeremy, you just reminded me about guitar lessons, about how you are, you, you love old guitars, among other things. And on this journey through a series of circumstances, you got to meet an artist by the name of Zach Brown. And you were sharing with me when you had that conversation that later... Zach reminded you of a role you played in his life some time ago. Can you just take 60 seconds and tell that sure, story? Sure. I actually brought that guitar today. It's a, it's a Martin Triple O 28. Okay, cool. Um, but yeah, I mean, there were Jeremy and then a few folks in my life early when I wasn't touring so much, I wanted to give back and to teach and, and, uh, like Jeremy and Zach and a few others, there's several of them that just became exceptionally successful and great talents. And Zach, Zach and I were playing together out in California and and got to know each other, we thought, and then came back to Georgia and I said, I've got this old Martin, I'm gonna send you a broker, do you wanna see it? And long story short, we got together and he handed me a guitar and I had a guitar and he had Janice Ian's guitar. I learned the truth at 17, the singer songwriter. He gave me that. He, he played my old Martin, and a few minutes in, he played something I wrote 30 years ago, and then I, <laughs> what was that all about? And I just stopped playing, and then he goes, you don't remember me, do you? And I said, yeah, we were just on a stage together. Yeah. I said, yeah, but I remember you now. You taught me how to play the guitar, and we both kind of started to tear up. It's like it didn't make sense on the stage right. after so much time, but when he was 12 to 15, I taught him, and I loved his curiosity. He'd want to do... He'd come in and want to do a James Taylor song, an ACDC song, a Zeppelin song, a Hank Jr. song, a classical thing. He had huge curiosities for three years. And uh, he said, you know, if I buy this guitar from you, I won't be the first one you sold me. I said, I sold you a guitar. <laughs> I played it on stage when I was 35. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but he's a phenomenal human, just an outstanding artist and great person. And it's a pleasure to speak of him. Yeah. My, my favorite part about that story was the, the, the connection was reminded musically mm -hmm. through the song. He didn't go, Tim, remember that you did this? You played the song and you went, wait, what? And that was the trigger. How cool is that? There's something powerful about people close, physically close and watching each other's hands and communicating that we can do with technology now, but just to be able to have that connection, it's a powerful one. I've become convinced and COVID just certified it that while we learn in rows, whether that's church or school, whatever, you build community in circles, you know, knee to knee, person to person uh, with social distancing, if appropriate, but whatever, right? But in that circle and whether it's around a dinner table with smells or music or whatever, that that's in a way that as much as I love the online world and connectedness, those things together, I think, resonate deep within the way human beings are created to bring out the best of us. Wouldn't you agree? That's really interesting, the, the linear versus circular. I, I think of it in similar terms, but just slightly different. So like the linear 
uh, way we've come up, you know, from school, you know, mm -hmm. first grade to second grade to third grade. It's all linear. Mm -hmm. First job, here's a promotion. It's linear. You check some boxes, right? Mm -hmm. The cool things happen, like orthogonal, right? The things that you know, if you're if you're if you're tucked this way, looking tunnel vision, you're not seeing all this stuff, right? So being able to step back and see all the other things around you that could be possible waypoints, right? Um, it's cool. Yeah, I love it. It's, um, you know, I probably didn't have the ability to learn that when I was 18 and 19. Uh, but that knowledge was out there. One of the reasons why I want to invite you guys in is um, I've become fascinated with this idea of I heard a story by Jamie Foxx talking about his home studio and how they create music and how he got to meet Kanye there and brought Ed Sheeran over. And those are cool stories on their own, but just that, that he could have a professional grade studio in his house. They could literally cut albums there. And I'm sure they've got pros that come in to produce and whatever. But from my understanding, it used to be you went to somebody else's studio and you had all of that gear that doesn't seem that that's necessarily the case today. Is that your experience? Totally. I mean, we, whenever we recorded at home 40 years ago, it was a, a reel to reel or a TAC cassette four track machine, and it was all demos. It was not like the real final product. No one had any thought you could cut drums if you weren't in the right room or this or that or the other, but it certainly changed dramatically. Oh, absolutely. Even even in like my generation specifically, I mean, I remember through you know, we had, I, we had very similar four track little task game things and tried to make the best of it. But you always in the back of your head were like, I can't make music unless I'm in the studio, whether it's magic, whether it's the dimensions of the room, whether it's the, the, the producer, the gear, the vintage gear that you could never have access to, right? Right. But now, like if we wanted to, like we've got an iPhone here, we could bang out something pretty cool, you know? Yeah. Um, but the one thing that hasn't changed is, is the power of a great song, the power of musicianship, um, being a lyricist, like that all is still like pure gold and magic, right? Because if you had... If you had the most wonderful tools at your fingertips and you, you don't know how to feed it the right way, um, there is a, there's still going to be something missing. You know, and to that point, Jeremy, um, Quincy Jones has this thing. He said, you need three things to make a great record. <clears throat> the song, the song, and the song. And so the perfecting of the art of songwriting, it's, it's a bit of a journey for all of us, but... One thing that I saw change when the record companies imploded and publishers a bit had to reorganize, there's still a big publishing industry in Nashville, for example, that has writers on a draw that come in and they get together in a room. Um, but the whole thing shrunk so much. And so, uh, you know, when the labels dismantled to the form factor that's like four of them now instead of 40. Mm -hmm. um, you don't have that um, that same development process for the art of the song because a lot of content that goes out and gets released is kind of self-generated mm -hmm. or an artist makes the record and they use the record company just to distribute it. I'm just using that as an example to say, I love all kinds of music, uh, but I don't get moved as often probably because I'm just an old shit. When I listen to the last 10 years of writing, 
and I go, am I going to want to hear this in 15 years or 10, you know, mm-hmm. is this going to stick to my ribs, not just where I'm at in my place in my life, but mm-hmm. is the craft of the song there. Mm-hmm. And as radio got less relevant mm-hmm. and singles got less relevant, all of it, I think, combined with the traverse from a fixed amount of tracks you could kind of do in tape to an unlimited amount of digital songwriting has become it's all kinds of layers and it's mm-hmm. a beautiful thing uh, but if I listen to Lady Gaga sing with Tony Bennett I mean it's so beautiful mm-hmm. the song mm-hmm. that canvas that they get to paint their talent on and uh, I'm, I'm hopeful that the craft of songwriting keeps being perfected it's just the reason we wrote we had these rules it's got to be this long and it's going to be in this AM <clears throat> format and that discipline was kind of helpful in a lot of ways uh, now that it's wide open space, it's still awesomely cool. Um, that's just my take on how those movements have changed and affected the output of songs. Yeah. Craft songwriting. It, in, as I'm listening to you talk, it almost reminds me, bear with me for a moment, like um, um, journalism or reporting, and I use that with quotes. Once upon a time, there were very strict rules on what it took to be a journalist, what outlets your stories came through. It was peer reviewed. There were consequences if you um, were inaccurate, especially if you were fraudulent. Um, people tuned into just a few sources of information, and platforms made that. I'm not going to say irrelevant, but it's muddied now. There's so many people. If you've got an iPhone, as you said, and you know what, internet access, you can publish whatever you want to say anywhere without being fact checked or whatever. So the quality, many times, not there. It's not that there aren't world class journalists out there doing world class work that follows all the original rules, but there's a lot of noise out there, and um, I'm curious. So that's what that reminds me of. But at the same time, if I wanted to be, if I was a um, young musician trying to figure out how to do this thing today, I can go to YouTube and it'll teach me, quote unquote, the rules. If you want to get something on one of the outlets, if you want to get it on radio, if you want to get it over here, here's how the songs that work, the ideas that work, here's how I did it or whatever. There is good or bad. There is a starting point. And I don't know that in the 70s. Are we allowed to say when you got started? Maybe <laughs> we're going to do that. Um, you know, where it was, uh, you know, whether it was Jesus music or Southern rock or, you know, choose your genre. Um, was it as well known or did you just grab three chords in the truth and start banging on your guitar? How, how did you figure out the rules before there's an internet to tell you these are the rules? It's kind of the business piece of it for me was the as happy of an accident just figuring out how to play because there weren't any videos and the printed books were kind of like <clears throat> the Camp Town races and Oh Susanna and you know the book that's yeah. just and then if you got a popular songbook it wasn't right so the only way we could really learn is to just move the needle back and just listen and go let the needle run across that piece of vinyl. And just learn, learn, learn. And then you might get to show like the Midnight Special um, 
or something. You know, Soul Train, or so I loved him. Actually, see the, yes. the finger position and the so voicing. It's see. like that's it. I, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So there was these little ways to do it. For me, it was uh, you know I was twelve. I started going the road after baseball and corn just hassling ended in the summer <laughs> and, and play with these guys and it you know it was kind of like a little hotel circuit and they were guys in their 30s and 40s which was great musically because i could watch or i could this is how i keep time with a drummer right just play in my room or this is where i play a fill in the, in the first verse and the piano guy does the second verse you just learn all those things but you get to see them it was that that was the most powerful thing, but I couldn't hit a video really, or there was no playbook for here's how you get a publishing deal, here's how you get your record deal. Right. You know, it was all over the place. And it was pretty greasy business, I guess, you know. Um, I guess maybe in some ways it still is, but Payola didn't end in the 50s. It's just people got smarter about how to break singles and, and satisfy the, the radio placement of a song. Yeah. I, it, I, that, that's one of the ways that I love tech is that it, if you want to be a pilot, if you want to be a musician, people that have had an experience or experiences, not necessarily that they are accurate, but they can post and you can get access. Oh, here's how I do something. I am reminded though that while I could watch a review on plumbing, I probably shouldn't do a lot of plumbing around my house because I'm not mechanically inclined that way. Um, what, what has been your experience? Have you, do, do you guys post a lot of how-to on YouTube or do you just, I mean, how do you learn new stuff while you're doing music or is it just still old school, just get in? Because one of the things you said, Tim, was you went, you had to leave your home and get on the road and a huge amount of music today. They don't, people don't leave their home, at least until they have some YouTube success or whatever. They just do it all in those sort of four walls. It almost feels like it's um, like that secret ingredient of getting on the road and learning through experience um, is just that. It's a secret ingredient. You need to get out there and do that. I think it's a double-edged sword a little bit, like with the access to information that we have. It's awesome. I mean, I'm, I'm not mechanically inclined either, but I remember <laughs> you know, my, my air conditioning went out in, in this old Lexus that I had. And instead of paying the dealership three grand, I went on YouTube and figured out parts and with some wrestling and some <laughs> right some expletives you know i got the job done but, right you know on, on the flip side of that like having having access to all that information it can be tough to figure out what to focus on right mm -hmm. um but you know you take the access of what you can go find but then also what gets pushed out so a lot of people might say oh maybe the quality of music has gone down a little bit but like music improves over iterations right and humans just in general have that little thing sitting on their shoulder saying you know you're not a musician you're not a writer you're not a this you're not it's the mm -hmm. ego protecting right? right but you know having more stuff out there tells me that more people are just trying stuff you know and um so so it's it's a challenge to let the good stuff rise above the noise which it usually does mm -hmm. um but it's really interesting. The access to things that you can go and learn is one aspect, but then also reverse the platform, how much stuff can get pushed out and what's happening there to this kind of creator economy, right? Yeah. Why do you think people, this is fascinating to me. I remember being in the army in 1985 in the barracks and one of the dudes came down the hall. It's one of the funniest things I've ever saw. And he had his new CD for Pink Floyd. 
And the everybody, first of all, you couldn't afford it. Nobody could afford that was in the military a CD player. But this guy somehow had a CD player and he had this new thing called a CD and he played it. And we were just oh, in awe, perfect music in this little deal. And then he said, and see, it's scratch proof. <laughs> and he ruined his CD. But I remember that experience. And now there is such a push for vinyl. I mean, the la- my kids are not collecting CDs. They either have MP3s or they have vinyl. They're getting old classic rock vinyl. They're getting the new stuff in vinyl. Um, or, or they have it in digital form on their phone, but there's no CDs anywhere in the mix. What is going on? Why is that changing? I mean, I think part of it's culture and the way that younger audiences love to uncover a song that nobody's heard because without radio influence <clears throat> hey i just heard this killer tune from so-and-so and you don't know him and i don't know him, but they love that nugget of newness um and and then this notion of you, you got a generation of folks who grew up with technology on every level, mm-hmm. which in part is why their English isn't as good because they're communicating acronyms and sentences. Right. So write me an email with two paragraphs of thought. For, and it's hard for a lot of folks who grew up gaming and stuff to, to do it. But when you think about that age group and flashing back to, I have to be intentional. I want to put this thing on this spinner. Let's set that needle on there. And it almost causes them to focus more than multitask where music is always playing in the background while I'm doing something else versus I'm going to sit here and listen to this thing. So there's that piece. I think, you know, the joke is, is why, um, why do vinyl records sound better? And, you know, no shit like me would say because the music is better. There's an element around it like that. That's true. But I'm sensing a theme coming out of this. But I think I love watching new artists go, this is a medium that is unique and it elicits a different behavior out of the listener. And somebody who's just looking at the phone and cooking, which is awesome to do, right? To, to to be intentional about listening to it. I think I think the drivers for you know presence and intentional moments. People are starting to realize the importance of those things because we're like we want to be efficient with everything that we do. We want to have all these shortcuts, all these macros set up to make our day more efficient but we end the day and we're spun around going what did i even do you know Mm. but finding you know that that 20 minutes where you can set a piece of vinyl down and just do nothing but listen to the crackle and imagine how it was recorded envision the one mic that they used instead of 300 tracks and you know uh quantizing and editing and all that kind of stuff i mean i think you're onto something with that like vinyl is kind of access to presence and you're holding the vessel the package that it came in mm. so i can read the liner notes and go jeremy gilbertson played the guitar and drums on this mm-hmm. blah 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 you you just embrace it a little bit differently than through a, a piece of electronics it's a good thing i think i remember um some of my favorite albums as a kid, especially if they were, um, they weren't the cheap ones. They were the open up like this, you know, the open wide and you, the double, but even if it wasn't a double record, but it was like a double sleeve. And so you had lyrics, not uncommon inside that or, or a lyric sheet that came with it. 
I know the lyrics are available on my phone, but here they are right here. And as a kid, there was something magical about that. Whatever art that they chose to put in there, sometimes it was picture from a concert tour. Sometimes it was them as kids or just the band and different stuff. And they, it was not infrequent that they wouldn't, that they would have um, just notes of what were we thinking or what was our headspace around this thing? And it just felt like it was a whole package. And then when I would uh, put on my really crappy headphones, because that was they look, better. They looked cool. They, yeah. they were, they, it looked like two giant eight-track tape players on the side of my head, you know, <laughs> Princess Leia special. Um, and I had my, I'd never forget, I was probably, I don't know, eighth grade when my parents gave me, they gave me a few things that just changed my life. One, I got four or five albums, Beach Boys, Endless Summer, Hotel California, um, Beach Boys, Endless Summer, Hotel California. Um, I don't remember, whatever the other two were. Oh, about Boston and um, I think Foreigner or something. But anyway, these, they didn't know what they were. I, I think what they did was they gave me, I think, uh, no, no, no. John Denver Greatest Hits. That's what it was. John Denver Greatest Hits. But it was, um, I think what they, in recording, they gave me money to go to the record store. And in our house, we were uh, Simon and Garfunkel, John Denver, Glenn Campbell, Carpenters, that kind of my parents' groove. And they just figured that I would, because I liked that music, that that's what I would get. But I came back with this. They, Kiss Destroyer was a bridge too far, so I couldn't do that. But uh, but whatever it was, it was these albums. Um and my A-track tape player, which was awesome unless you missed your song, you know, and then you had to, chuk, 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 you know, come back around the horn, right? Kids have no, uh, no idea. And, um, and this light box that would resonate and flash lights to the beat. And I would just sit in my room. And why I hated wearing the headset was I couldn't get the light box to go. But I couldn't play the music as loud as I wanted on the um, deal. And my, the cord wasn't very long. I remember the cord, you'd stretch it as long as you could and you'd get a crick in your neck. But it would music back then, and I don't want to say the good old days, but it would tell this story. Like so it was a, usually it was a purposeful, these songs relate to each other. And if you listen to them in order from the front side to the back side, it would take you on this journey. And it didn't have to be progressive rock, like Yes, or Emerson, like a Palmer or something like that. It could be any of these bands. And it was really cool. I wonder if trying to get back to vinyl for people is trying to kind of like we were talking about before sitting around and smelling things at the dinner table or playing music that it gets you, gets you back into that emotive, you know, that emotion where you're experiencing the whole thing. I, I agree. I love it. And I, and you can find these little inexpensive old timey turntables yeah that have a cheap little speaker in it well, yeah and kids will want yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. my daughter has one yeah people even without the perfect wi-fi or, or hi-fi right you know with speakers and subwoofers and layers it's just fun to see kids coming into a party with this little suitcase in it yeah yeah sometimes at the house we'll uh we'll throw a um a record on like during dinner and the kids now know when the music stops, like, oh, I'll go flip the record. Like, wow. Like this, like this moment of like, oh, yeah, we actually have to do this. It's not something you just click on and it's never ending, right? Yeah. Um, I think little things like that, even the 8-track, 
yeah. thing, right? It, those little moments like bring you back to like more of a connected experience, which is ironic because we talk about technology and connectedness, yeah. but it's less human connectedness, right? It's less presence. It's more optimized things, right? Yeah. It's, um, again, I don't want to, you know, I want modern medicine and I like the connected things for sure. I don't miss the days of my 12 foot Rand McNally Atlas map trying to drive across the country. I just want to ask Google, where is it going? Hey Siri. Hey, Siri. That's right. Um, I think it'd be funny as heck to name your kid Siri, but anyway, talk, so these are all great things. One of the things that seems interesting to me is um, it's very easy for me to share the music that I love, one of the reasons I, I love technology is my daughter, uh, my middle daughter's up at UNG, and she kind of gets my groove. There are a few genres that I'm just not into. I can do some rap, but I don't get into gangster or disrespectful rap. I, it's just not my thing because I really tune into the stories. There are a couple other things that I don't get into, but but I can go from the Black Pumas to the Cars to, you know, what the Andrews Sisters, whatever. And she will send me music that she discovers that her playlist will say, hey, if you like that, you should check out this. And I've discovered so much cool music that way. And it's easy for me to share it. So I dig that. Do you guys experience that at all? Do you share much or do you, um, do you have things set up to let you know, Hey, you, if you like so-and-so you should like this. Sharing music like as a language, even with non-musicians, like mm. sharing music with people is a great bridge and just point of connection. You know, go back to, you know, my kids, you know, in the car when we're on long road trips We'll basically pass the horn around and each person will get to pick a song. And mm. We go through all these different ones and then they listen to mine and I listen to theirs. And before you know it, like our playlists are getting closer and closer together because we enjoy, you know, sharing with each other. It's uh, it's cool. And having a tool to do that is amazing, right? <clears throat> like Spotify or whatever else you use, right? Yeah. It is I mean, I'm thinking, Jeremy, back in flashback mode, we used to have music class in public school. Mm -hmm. Every you know, you have math and PE and science, and then you go to music class, and you might have a flutophone or a bongo or a ukulele. Yeah. Every time recorder, <laughs> but everybody went, and so there was a window when that got out of funding, and there was no more free lesson and experience. And so I think that's part of what drives kids who may not even be musicians. They're attracted to this idea: how can I share music? even if I can't play it or I didn't learn it in a classroom. And um, there's a guy named Dan Levitin who's a friend of mine, and he had a, a book, and there's a video on YouTube about your brain on music, and they show a PET scan of someone not hearing music, someone listening to music, and somebody playing music. Hmm. You watch the fireworks in your brain. It goes bonkers when you're playing. It goes a lot up when you're just listening. Mm -hmm. But there's so much power in the in pleasure in the in in music that can be physical and, and, and mental and stimulating, especially with kids who learn early, they get better spatial skills and tend to do better in math or that I don't know that I did. <laughs> but uh, it's it's a it's a cool thing to watch music uh, uh, have a physical impact on people's blood pressure and their sleep cycles and all kinds of things. Yeah, it's it, that that same study I, I reference a lot that you know it, it literally lights up um, so many areas of your brain simultaneously that nothing else does. 
um, whether it's the creation, whether it's the listening for understanding, whether it's the emotional side of it, whether, you know, whatever it is, all those areas of your brain are firing. Um, and yeah, nothing else does that. It's really cool. Somebody once said, and it took me a while to kind of get my head around it, but I genuinely believe it now that the highest form of worship is music. And what they were trying to say is that when you're caught up in the imagination, the expression, whether you are singing it, regardless of whether you're a good singer or not, you're playing it or some combination, or you're just in it and, and your imagination is running with just today, uh, as I'm getting ready, I'm out of the shower and I've got a, a song out of this um, UK gospel kid that he created. Um, I think his name is Jonathan Ogden. It's on my playlist. It's this beautiful song and I'm just listening to it and I just enter the state of just worship. I'm just in there letting it just flow through me. But the same thing if I'm rocking to... Um, you know, an old rocker tune or my you know, oldest daughter has really gotten into Andrew's uh, sisters and 40s kind of music and just sit back and listen to the stories being told. It really can capture my heart and my imagination. And I think in particular, if you're, if you're practicing gratitude or thankfulness or just I can really get lost in even music without, uh, you know, um, words, which shocks my children that there's music out there, call that classical music, without words and how you can just almost get into a meditative state with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, if you think about like we were talking earlier, like linear versus circular and orthogonal in this like community building aspect. So think about like a concert, right? So you go in there, say we all go to the same concert, we walk in as individuals, we walk in as uh, Jeremy, Dave, and Ted, mm-hmm. you know, we're just, we're just people with our days in our heads and all that kind of stuff. <clears throat> but there's a moment where, you know, before the concert happens, we're like talking, maybe sharing a beer or whatever, lights go down. Mm-hmm. And that triggers this, this transition of individuals into this communal experience. A lot of people write about it, call it, call it you know, uh, a liminal experience or a transitional experience or mm-hmm. even communitas mm-hmm. is a term I think Burning Man kind of threw out there a while back. Oh, wow. That is, you know, when you're at a concert and all of a sudden you feel like one entity with this crowd and you're totally pulled into this music. And um, one example of it, me personally, I, it was years ago, my wife and I went to um, Down From The Mountain when a brother yeah. out there came out and it was like, Alison Krauss, Ricky Skaggs, oh, Norman Blake at Chastain. I was there. Yeah. yeah, oh, were you? It was an amazing show. So do you remember at the very end when Ralph Stanley came up <clears> and says, <throat> hey guys, we're going to do something old school. It's called call and response. I want everyone to stand up, grab each I'm getting chills talking about it. Hold each other's hand, and he led the whole place in Amazing Grace. And wow. I remember. Acapella, and yeah. I remember just shouting it to the top of my lungs. I mean, tears <laughs> streaming down my face, and like looking all around. And and at the end, the lights come on, and everyone's Dude. just like sitting in their hands with this look of like, "What just happened?" Yeah, that's that's an example of that moment. But that's so crazy that you were there, man. Yeah, it was awesome. Though. That was crazy, right? Rodney Crowell and Amy Lou and totally. the Ricky Skaggs and the Kentucky Thunder. Do you remember what Ricky Skaggs said right before he went into his first song? <laughs> so he had like he had something like that. So he had like a thousand people. There were like six mandolins, two upright bass. Like Jerry Douglas was out there, and like all these guitars. It was like his family. 
And he turns back and looks at everyone and kind of winks. He goes, all right, y'all, we're fixing to mash it. (laughs) They just just blew it up and all acoustic instruments. And you're just like, there's smoke coming and fire and like, whoa. Yeah. Yes. Um, My wife and I almost had at least emotionally the same experience. We, um, every year we try to go what's called the Highland Games. And we take our RV down to the campground at Stone Mountain. We go to the Stone Mountain. Um, I don't know what she sees. All these big, thick dudes in skirts running around, throwing telephone poles. I go there for the haggis, the Scottish eggs, and the beverages. But um, one of the coolest things for me is the um, what they call the pipe and drum competition, usually made up by cops. Lots of cops, law enforcement people seem to be attracted to this stuff. And they have the full regalia, the full uniform. And when somebody can really play bagpipes, it's haunting. So we're back from the show. Campfire's going. It's a beautiful, crisp fall night. And one of the competitors starts playing a couple songs plays the first one and you can't see them because you're in the woods. So even though the, the, the campers are only 25, 30 feet apart, there's thick woods and brush. And so you're kind of, you got this community of firewood and you can smell it and you can hear people, but you can't really can't see them. And it's dusk and he ends, the sun is already set. He ends with amazing grace and there's a lake there. And as he gets done playing, I look over at my wife and we are both bawling Everybody clapped after the first two songs, but on this song, it was just a soft, beautiful finish, and it was like a holy moment. And it's unbelievable how music, with no, just, and an instrument you may not even be familiar with, can elevate. It does, and I also love how it transitions across the It's like Jeremy's much younger than I am, but we're connected. Much. Yeah, three years, (laughs) six months, yeah. He's Mr. CrossFit, by the way. This is he is. I know. I know. I'm not worried about offending um, you, except for your well armed. Jeremy would beat me up long before I could get to that door. <laughs> but I'm thinking about the one of the powers of music is the integration of generations, and and how as a person ages, many people who are performers maintain their skill set. I'll tell you two quick stories. One about Les Paul. One about Tony Bennett. So I had dinner with Les Paul at the Rhythm Jazz Club in Times Square, Jesus, probably 15 years ago. And he did two shows every Monday. He was in his 90s and um, had a band, a really cool little band. And so I uh, was introduced through a guitar manufacturer friend of mine, Paul Reed Smith. And so we had dinner with Les, and he's in the back. And he's in his 90s, and his left hand's all gnarled up. And he's just happy, and he's got his light on his step. And this is a guy nicknamed the Wizard of Waukesha. He's from Waukesha, Wisconsin. But he helped invent a lot of elements for electric guitar and certainly for multi-track recording. And then him and his wife, Mary Ford, pioneered this idea of layering of guitar parts and harmony vocals. And so just a, a, a technical mind with a creative mind. And we're eating, and he's eating a cheeseburger with French fries. He's drinking a Pollinger beer, and um, and I'm just watching this whole thing for a minute. And I just we're sitting across from each other. I said so, and his doctor was in the room. I said so, Les, you know, any dietary restrictions or things you think I can use? No, I'm 93 years old. I eat whatever the hell I want. <laughs> he had that joyful thing on the stage, you know. Right. 
he was funny, he played, and um, his son was the sound man who kind of looked older than Les. Yeah. Didn't have the same sort of passion, but it's an example of how over time, unlike tennis and other things, you can still play. Singing's a little bit harder to right. arrange for some guys, but I'll tell you Tony Bennett's story since he's been in the news recently with his Lady Gaga record and his uh, candor about his um, dementia challenges. He's at the Fox in Atlanta, and he's way into his 80s at this point. Um, and I'd never seen him, and I didn't really know much about him because he didn't play and he didn't write. Those are the guys that attracted me. Anyway, he, he comes up, he's got piano, bass, <clears throat> drums, and um, uh, keys. Small group on a rug, and he pushes them way forward to the edge of the stage at the Fox. And it's a 6,000 seater, I think. And his his daughter opens, and she's really good. And, um, and then Tony comes out, and there's no attitude. There's no, like, he's like, would you mind if I did a song for you that, I did with Bing Crosby for the troops in 1940. I mean, all night long, he was right. I am here for myself out for you. And he gets towards the end and he says, I want to show you guys something. And um, he goes, they don't make places like this anymore. Let me tell you what I'm talking about. He puts the mic down and he brings the guitar player forward. And with no mic and just the guitar playing softly, he sang like, and I was, Jessica and I were on the front row in the middle. And then I was in this moment where I watched a guy in his 80s at the top of his game just pouring himself out. And there was no phones, nobody made it. was just yeah. unbelievable. And he's such a great, gifted man. But that's an example, another example, how music with age can be a friend to your whole life. And he certainly gave it up for all of us. Yeah. That's a really cool story. Another, another interesting tie-in to technology, right? So nobody makes places like this anymore physical venues used to be the technology right how they were designed that's right it is and there's still i mean you know there's mystique around some like red rocks and these other places i <clears throat> hope that um one of the things i am encouraged because i'm an optimist is that human beings generally we learn from our mistakes if we the pendulum swings one way too far we come back when you're telling the tony bennett story you'd started earlier talking about him and lady gaga and one of the things that i love about both of them i confess in my her early years i was not lady gaga was probably not on my playlist i enjoy a number of her things now that woman has played with metallica she has done her own thing she is unafraid chick to dive in. But what's really cool that I've seen, and I don't know if this is, you know, I don't, I don't know these artists at all, but you just see this, you hear other artists talking about her in particular and what you describe with Tony Bennett. She's like, look, I'm, I'm willing to be vulnerable. You want to lead the show, Lars, you lead the show and I'm no attitude. I'll just join in. I remember Lars saying, this chick showed up better rehearsed, ready to go <laughs> prepared. James Hetfield was like, dude, we, we felt intimidated because she was no joke. And at the same time, the kind, one of the kindest, not just a pro, one of the kindest people they've ever worked with. And I think she's super um, respectful of Tony Bennett. Yeah. She's a wonderful, wonderful um, ambassador for him. And, and uh, she's immensely talented. 
So we are all in the technology business, and you guys are master musicians. We've spent a lot of time talking about more and more stories. I do want to add just one real quick, and then I want to move on to some of the things we need to think through. I don't know that technology is helping us yet, but but maybe it can. And that is, Jeremy, you may not know this, but um, Tim and I had an appointment one time years ago down in downtown Atlanta, and I just had a couple rules, really, really simple. One, never set up an appointment on a Friday afternoon in downtown Atlanta, <laughs> ever. Just don't do it. Because where I had to get back to, he didn't live far from there and he could take back roads. I'm living up by the lake. And so it's two hours if you leave after four o'clock. It was a very high quality target. Number one, that's first rule. <laughs> but if you have to break the first rule, never leave me stranded. Don't leave me doing the appointment by myself. Never leave me stranded. Tim violated that on two occasions. <laughs> the first occasion was, um, and I may get these in wrong order, but these are the two stories I remember, was your son, Luke, was getting ready, had an opportunity, was either just going to school or was going to England for a semester or something like that. But it was one of the last times that you, your son, and your daughter were going to have. And his buddy John called him up and said, why don't you come out to the ranch for the weekend? We'll hang out, um, you know, blah, blah, blah. We'll have a good time and and then send the kids off. And um, if you know Tim, his kids are super important. They were then. Now they're just annoyance to him. But back then they were super important to him. And um, this was an opportunity, and I was so angry. And, of course, classic Tim, I found out, like, on my way downtown. But, Dave, we can't cancel the appointment. It's super important. You don't need me anyway. What do you need me for? So I was irritated. Well, it turns out his friend was John Oates from Hall and Oates, who had said, hey, come out here, um, see if we can make this happen. And so he went out for the weekend. Um, a few years later, they came to town. I was like, give me some Hall and Oates tickets. Nah, you don't want to do that, Davey. The traffic's terrible. Come on. But the funnier one was he got called into same same scenario. Hey, I can't make the appointment. We'll cancel the appointment. We can't cancel the appointment, Dave. You know the customer's counting on us. So he doesn't cancel the appointment, but it was you were called in to do as a guitarist and a singer for a last minute for a roast. Do you remember this? You were roasting somebody. And I was like, this better be good. And he was roasting Chevy Chase. Or Chevy Chase was part of it or something. It was you, Chevy Chase. Oh, and Ben Turner was, it was the, yeah. Some big thing. And I just remember you guys got in this big heated argument about who had the bigger cleft yeah, dimple. dimple on your chin and whatever. And somehow that excused his bad behavior to set up the appointment uh, on a Friday afternoon. Funny stories. More, uh, more important question. Yeah. Did you close your deal? We did. Of course we did. Wait, you said we. He showed up in time to close the deal. You know how that works. You know how that works. Dave. No, he was master. Still is a master of his craft. Thank you. Uh, pretty funny. So here's the thing. So people have access to music in a way that they never have. You can get it, tune into history. You can tune into any genre you want. You don't have to wait for Discover New Wave on KROQ or some college station out of Minneapolis or Austin or... Yeah, even today, I remember when I flew out here from California um, with the Army, and I didn't think it was going to be all that bad because I was riding on the bus and they are playing um, 
Depeche Mode. And I was like, hey, man, they got some cool music. And right when it ended, the DJ said, and that's that new hit from Depeche Mode. And I thought, oh, no, it was not a good, not a good place. So you got access to all of this information. We can distribute it better than we ever have. And yet there's a lot of conversation I've heard, which is one of the reasons why I wanted you on the show. I'm not super familiar with it, um, about artists being paid royalties when they create music that's being distributed. And I, if you could explain how it used to work and then maybe talk about how it works now and, and do I have that story correctly and if, and if not, correct it. And what you think, how do you think we can solve it going forward? So how did it used to work if you created a track? Um, there were two lanes, mechanical royalties and performance royalties. Okay. And mechanical royalty would be a, a number that accrues every time a product sells an album, tape, a CD, or whatever. Um, and then a performance royalty would be radio performances. Every time your song would play in a given market, so many cents would be collected by ASCAP, BMI, or CSAC, these licensing orbs. Um, so the performance royalty would be radio, television, uses, your songs in a movie, all those kind of things. Like Bob Seger, I think he did a one-time sellout for a million bucks for like a rock, so heavy trucks or somebody could use a song. So those would be performance-driven. And um, and that foundation goes back to player pianos and rolls in Tin Pan Alley in New York City in the early teens, 20s, where pianos would play on a roll and then there was a way to account the roles and that's how a royalty thing got started there were hmm. so many plays so it's a strange connection from hendrix back to player pianos in manhattan but that was the foundation so performance royalties mechanical royalties um, that's the beginning of it okay uh, and what I heard, it seems like it might just be a myth, but over and over and over, there was not a lot of love for record companies because they felt like you weren't getting very good deals. And unless you had a really big hit song, it was unlikely that you would continue to make really good money off that. So when you're talking about the royalties, if you're a moderately successful artist, I don't want to name any, but let's just say an intermediately successful um what did, I mean, was there a steady revenue stream there? If you were the one hit wonder from the 70s? The main thing, the, if we were in the band and we got a record deal, the record company would say, here's an advance so all you can live for a year while we're making a record. And first of all, you got a deal so you're happy. Right. Just let me sign. I need the deal. Right. And what you're signing away is that everything we record is owned by the record company now. They own the content and they'll pay us a royalty, a mechanical royalty every time something sells. But then they'll say, hey, over here is Joe, <clears throat> who runs our publishing company. Same company, just a different arm. He's our publisher. You need to sign that agreement. Well, the record company owns the recording, the publisher owns your song. So you don't own your song. You know That's how um, John Fogarty with Credence kind of went through battles where he had a falling out with his record company and his publisher. And they said, guess what? You can't even perform these songs in concert. For a long period of time, so you, you're kind of an indentured servant. At that, time. I think Prince was trying to make the same point, right? And people like, yeah, so you know. exactly. That and, and really, Tom Petty was one of the first people in the '90s who stood up to that system and said, "This is wrong, and here's why. Here's what I've done to advance my career." And he 
didn't blink. He took a huge record company to the mat and won. And then he created a field of opportunity for a lot of other artists who could renegotiate their deals. But in short, the record company owned the master recordings. They published their own song. You could generate royalties would be generated and paid, but let's just say the record many cost $150,000 to make. Mm -hmm. Well, you collect zero money until that gets paid back. So the record company is supposed to be your investor partner, but the reality is they're a banker. Right. And until you pay that back, you get zero. Oh, and, oh, you forgot. We spent 80 grand on radio promotion. So that's got to get, there's all these layers. And so artists could make money and kind of by their standards become wealthy over time. But the machine made most of the money, and then the same with the publishing. So that's kind of how it began, and it's evolved a lot since. But Jeremy, you got something cooking? Yeah, no, you, I think you hit the nail on the head with that, and, and you know it, it all kind of boiled down to didn't it? Like the the idea that the artist was like, "Wow, this is my ticket," like that's the opportunity I need to take and, and run with it, right? Because they they're going to take the song, they're going to uh, elevate me and put me on tour all of that stuff so it, in, in one respect as an artist trying to work their way up is like it's hard to kind of say no to that you know you're just super excited right but you know the, the terms of these deals are just awful and like you said they're a bank but they're also a bank that retains ownership after you pay the bank back right. which is like even even worse um it's interesting what i'm seeing like today related to a lot of this stuff i mean all of those systems are still in place the the big three Labels are out there. Uh, the big three labels also happen to be some of the largest publishers in the world. So there's just like, they're still kind of tied in that respect. But there's an interesting thing happening with outside equity coming in and actually treating songs like an asset class, mm -hmm. uh, which is really interesting. Hypnosis um, Song Fund started by this guy, Merck, who's been in the music industry forever, managers for Madonna, Shakira, and all of those people. Um, he has this fund that he built over in the UK that's actually over two million pounds. Um, and they own some of the best songs in the world, but he is taking an artist-friendly approach to try and flip the script on how those artists are paid. Because if you think about it, Tim Rent mentioned uh, mechanical royalties, mm -hmm. right? So how many, how much expense, how, how much of an expense are record labels now, uh, you know, getting charged with to make physical records, not much. Not right? much. But the deal still reflects that <clears throat> structure and that cost, right? right? So it's it's interesting to see, like um, even a lot of these big publishers are getting you know investment, like Primary Wave, I think is one. Roundhill is getting some investment, um, but they're treating the songs differently and treating the songwriters or trying to treat the songwriters yeah. um, differently in in making. In, in giving them the value they need to get. Merck is also doing um, uh, a songwriter's book. I think I don't know if you saw that announcement recently, but he is going to lead a, a songwriting songwriters guild to address a lot of the stuff that's going on. It's really interesting to see where things things are it starting. Is. And then to Jeremy's point about more artists friendly business terms, if you flash back to the seventies, David Geffen started Asylum Records for, for it to be a retreat, a place where artists who'd been ripped off could come and get a better deal and so the eagles and et cetera et cetera et cetera uh, all made albums under that so the idea was there it was mm -hmm. born early today i think i see it 
a lot more flexibility around a major artist will say, I'm funding the recording and I want to own my masters. And I want you to get a piece of my pie as the record company and help me with radio and distribution and this, that, and the other. It's reversed. Mm -hmm. Some Only certain artists mm -hmm. can get that power. <clears throat> and then the same thing happens with catalog and songwriting. So if you think of the, in the COVID season, Bob Dylan and Stevie Nicks and Blondie and bunches of people sold their song catalog rights for $80 million to $300 million. To, it's a way to collect now while I'm 75 years old. Right. Maybe now. <laughs> it's right. a little bit of time. But to Jeremy's point, people like the Merck folks go, this is a, a class of content that has value and will keep having value. Somebody's believing that there's a royalty stream mm -hmm. coming, you know, so I'm, I'm actually encouraged by that a lot. Yeah, and, and the buyouts are, are, are interesting, too, um, related to, you know, we can kind of inch over towards NFT world. Mm -hmm. So NFTs, just in, as a quick, you know, general, is just a way to draw a digital border around a digital asset and claim ownership and also figure out what the interaction of that asset is between different people, different domains and all of that. It's just a way to automate ownership of an asset. So there are companies now that are actually allowing artists to um, auction pieces of the royalty stream, not ownership in the song, not IP, but ownership in their royalty stream as an NFT. So that has a time domain on it, that has a percentage domain on it, and all really interesting things that allow the artists to get paid today versus down the road. But the, the challenge is, I think that'll come up with this, this NFT as a financial mechanism. I think there's going to be some uh, governance issues because it's, it's almost seeming like an investment, right? So the, so the SEC puts something through what's called the Howey test, which makes it an investment or not. But anyway, the technology now is allowing people to do that on a smaller scale, um, which is, which is pretty interesting. Well, it's, um, what is, as you're talking about this, I'm reminded of, I think Radiohead did it. I think Coldplay did it. I'm sure art, other artists have as well. But instead of going through the traditional route through a record company at the time, they just put a song or an album up and said, pay us what you think. Here it is available to download for free. Um, I don't remember which band, maybe it was Coldplay. Download it for free. Pay us what you think it's worth. And the way that this experiment went was after the week or two weeks or whatever, they looked at how much they, how many people had downloaded it, how much they got collected, and they compared it to doing it the traditional way. And they said, you know what, we ended up at about the same amount of money after the quote unquote bank took, would have taken their cut if they had done it that way. I don't know if it's an urban legend, but I, I'm pretty sure I either heard Chris Martin or one of the folks talking about sort of this yeah. experiment. Um, about the customer determining the price. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, because the money, just whatever the money was, it went straight to them, to the band. And it didn't, and, but the access was much easier mm -hmm. than having to do it the traditional way. Yeah. Um, I mean, another thing in that same vein that's happened is Garth Brooks or the Eagles saying, here's our new record, and it's only available for, for six months in Walmart or Walmart.com. Or mm -hmm. McCartney saying, you can only buy this in Starbucks. They're creating a demand cycle with a limited way to 
get get the content through a certain retailer mm-hmm. and then the way that works for the artist is here's a fat check in advance mm-hmm. just like you know Arthur Fogelberg with Live Nation you want to make 100 million bucks on your tour I'll guarantee that I'll take all the risk just tell me how many dates you can do what countries we're going to play in he does all the math and is awesome and does the upside so Bono says he's the other guy in their band that nobody knows about so mm-hmm. your ability to pay forward through choosing your retail outlet and or on a live music perspective you know de-risk the process as an artist and get an upfront payment mm-hmm. and that's kind of how gaga got get a first big lick that way was telling him here's the number i want mm-hmm. and, uh, it's fascinating how the little metrics keep changing maybe for the better i think yeah, it's another example of like an unbundling of traditional label services, right? Because sometimes the label back in the day would run the tour and, and set up the tour and, and all of that. So you got things that used to be in record label and getting parsed off by you know clever entrepreneurs that are setting up systems and processes and even technology, you know, that that help you know even more independent artists get stuff. I mean, you got like. TuneCore and DistroKid and all of that yeah. stuff that help on digital distribution, which weren't there a bunch of years ago. You yeah. know, um, all of these things are starting to spin up, and these great entrepreneurs are figuring out a way to pick up the slack and offer another solution. Forever, if you wanted to hear a song, you had to hear it on the radio. Now, you might go to a record store back when we had record stores, you had to go to the record store and get an album or a CD or a cassette or whatever, but you got introduced to music or you're um, either from a friend or from the radio and they heard it from the radio or whatever. There really were no other places to get music. There might be a bootleg tape that somebody kind of recorded, but that was rare. Today you can just go to YouTube or to any, any of these technology platforms and distribute it to get introduced. Do you think that the, that it's necessary to have to go to radio these days for an artist to be successful, at least to launch their career and have some level of success before they go the traditional radio route? Or is that uh, not as important anymore? I mean, my view for radio now is that it isn't a prime distribution mechanism like it was you mentioned mm-hmm. here it's really um, it's a competitive <clears throat> framework from which awards are won so the way the charts work that reflect back to radio and other mediums create this matrix of some ideas of success mm-hmm. around plays and this that and the other so radio for the most part in my view in chart position is about awards mm. and then awards are about endorsements or touring partners or other things the awards become this accretive thing that advances your career um, i'm not sure that radio has that power and relevance that it did previously in part because mm-hmm. you have so much streaming happening and, and it's all kind of a big mess at this point but, mm-hmm. um, you yeah it's, it's definitely different than it used to be right that was like the that was the path and you mentioned kind of back in the payola days and you had a guy that knew the dj or the promoter or like not to say that it's all it's not a crooked situation all over the place but there was there was one 
uh, map to start in, you know, and, and if that's the road, route you were going, I think that was it. It's very different how things happen now. I mean, they're the, the big thing, I think, with music that we have so much of it coming out on so many different platforms, it becomes less about how the music comes out, but like what are the tools for filtering and curation to uh, serve these like little mini niches uh, of people that love certain subgenres and all of that. Like, right. It's it's in, Kevin Kelly talks about filtering as this yeah. like technological trend, right? We have like there's more there's more data, there's more content created yesterday than <laughs> you and I can watch for the rest of our lives if we lock ourselves in here. Right. So how do we filter that content and stuff that's meaningful for us, meaningful for other people? And you just got to find those pockets where it's almost like a mini radio thing, right? But it's it's not radio per se. Yeah. I mean, Dave, if you think about the tube cogs in that wheel, the recording and the tour. So radio is kind of tied to the recording. And the, and the reason you toured <clears throat> was to support the product. Right. The product's coming out. We've got to go on tour. Right. But now the product is a less or amount of the revenue stream. It's really the we're going to go, the product helps us go do the tour because that's where the bigger money is, is in the tour rather than in the product. And so then back to the thing I said earlier, well, why does the product and radio matter? It's about chart stuff, and awards and things like that, which are wonderful. It's just, there's a real uh, discipline around uh, how do you conduct yourself and monetize awards in a way that advance your career. It's very amazing thought process and uh, but I the the recording and the touring have taken it's sort of flip-flopped why would you do one and which one's more important my wife and I listen to the radio a lot more than our children do when we drive their go-to is what's my stream what's my channel on their Spotify account or Pandora or whatever it is and let that play and discover new stuff. And, um, ours is, you know, turn it on that FM classic rock or, or the alternative, whatever. And, um, we will also sometimes alternate songs, but we're usually switching off the radio so they can grab the device and stream a, a song through. And we have our own playlist. I mean, we, we stream a lot, I would say as well, but, um, my kids don't discover new music on the radio at all. They discover it all on the internet. And what you guys were describing, um, that it reminded me of that movie, uh, that thing you do, Tom Hanks's movie. Didn't you love that movie? But there's the scene when their hit comes on. Right. And they're running around and screaming and yelling. And the parents were, you know, these knuckleheads that weren't doing their chores and always trouble. And now they're proud because they're on the radio. And, um, you know, you so many times throughout movie and culture, we see, we either read or see or hear when that moment came on, when the world heard us, even if it's in that small regional area. And it was just such a moment of joy. I guess the equivalent to that now would be, I got it posted and my likes counter or my listens counter is going up um, as opposed to this sort of, you know, these are the people in this community or on this radio station or whatever that are listening to that. And I, I, to me, it seems like sort of this 
disjointed back to almost like vinyl is released on the radio. It's warm and it's messy and it's crackly and it's experiential. And then the, this is how I'm sounding old. And then the streaming one is just sort of, I put it out there. I don't know who's liking it or, you know what I mean? It's this, it's an interesting dichotomy. I think there's a general acceptance of, um, you know, uh, a limiting of moonshot moments for artists, right? The, the moonshot moment where, you know, Billy Irish gets pulled from her bedroom and, you know, instant stardom, although she would probably argue that it wasn't instant because there was right. a lot of hard work behind that. Sure. But there was a moonshot moment of her getting like plucked out and discovered, right? Right. But, you know, the, the ability to, 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 to create music, post music, create these micro communities around your music, it's, I think it's more, it's less about those moonshot moments and how to live in the middle of a very sustainable career and ecosystem that, you know, can generate you money. Um, but you know, it's, it's not, here's one path. I hope I get on. And if I don't, I'm done. Right. But I guess that's a question then. Can it generate you money? I mean, I hear you hear over and over, you guys would know better than me that, um, I, I put content even, you know, uh, traditional content, old school content, it gets on one of these platforms. How are we accounting for it? How's somebody getting paid either their production or mechanical royalty or whatever? And in so many cases, you're just, it seems like you're just not, or it's, it's, it's as bad or worse as it was when you were paying the record company bank. Is that not true? Or is that a misunderstanding? I'm thinking of um, Irving Azoff, who was the Eagles manager and many other people's, and he had a really tough reputation. <clears throat> really tough. And I remember watching Don Henley say, people said that Irving is Satan, but he's our Satan. That's right. I remember. And, so, and so sometimes the, the trail to the money is having, you have, you have the craft and the talent and the art, but there's a business element. If you've got that right, person steering a ship they can negotiate and many times it's a music attorney but or a manager but it makes a big difference in the outcome of where are we going to go put it and how do we get paid and you know this jeremy from sync rights and all the stuff we do with your music um i, I mean i would say this you know there's that old adage that money can't buy you happiness but it will buy you a better brand of misery and yeah. so when you're an artist and you need money if you've got a business person attached to you who can help facilitate that, they're all going to take a piece of it, but you're going to end up perhaps with a better part of it. But I can listen to every Eagles song right now without ever buying another Eagles album in high quality stereo, or at least high quality to the audience. I happen to own most of the Eagles albums, uh, probably for the fifth time, one way or the other. But if they were releasing their content today and many times to go out there, you know, not available on YouTube, not available on whatever, give it an hour, give it a week. It's back up. Somebody else has posted it and gotten it out there. And it seems like there's this war now. Satan doesn't have enough demons and minions out there to help him to get it off a line. So how do you protect your content to where, you know, there's a, um, Tim, you told me this year, decade ago, easily, a different topic, but same idea. There's a scripture that says, to the workmen pay their wages. And I'm sure that's in every philosophical, religious, whatever, which is if you do the work, you created it, and you're an artist, you're owed something for that work. You built a retaining wall, you fixed the plumbing, you did the air conditioning, whatever. You created a song. 
And it feels like with platforms, and I'm not anti-platform, but it can be published without your permission to those platforms, and then you're not rewarded for that. How's the world change? I think the policing of that has gotten a little more robust than it had been in the past. Mm. Algorithmic searching and tagging and all of that. Um, it's not ideal, and there's stuff that still happens. Mm-hmm. But, uh, I think the bigger thing where my head goes is like, how can we look at an industry that was put together 100 years ago based on the way the world worked 100 years ago? Mm-hmm. And how can we flip that on its head in a really interesting way. And, and one of the things I've been thinking about, if you'll entertain yeah, the idea, please do. Um, you know, the idea of so you, the way the industry kind of works is you have artists here, <clears throat> you have kind of the publishers, labels, you know, intermediaries in the middle, distributors, and then on the other side, you have the fans. And here's where the writing happens, here's kind of where the monetization happens. And on this side, fans are merely users or consumers of music. And I think the trends are pointing to fans wanting to come over on this side a little bit and start start easing into uh, participation and potential co-monetization. You know, it all started out with like these VIP experiences. So you mm. can see Alicia Keys and you buy the VIP experience. You can sit down with Alicia for you know five minutes and. Have a, have a tremendously meaningful conversation. Rod Stewart's coming in August, VIP, right here. <laughs> yeah, so so that that speaks to this idea that fans want to participate in music. Heck yeah. They want to just listen to it. So what if we change music distribution altogether? What if we change songwriting altogether? What if we change where fans sit in the process altogether? So think about this. Think about Tim comes in, and Tim's a music director, and he, he's going to put together some new music. And uh, he's good. This is this is a concept I've been I've been kind of wrestling with a thought experiment for a while. And we bring Tim in, and Tim's the musical director. Okay, Tim is not writing a song. Tim is not you know playing any sort of music. Tim's going to write what we call an aesthetic map, which basically says you know I want the song to feel like X Y Z. I want um, it to be 120 beats per minute. Uh, I'm actually going to put together a tempo map that basically will import into any music production software to where, you know, the whole arc of the song is locked in. So then Tim gets five of his buddies, right? And uh, maybe they're people he collaborated with. Maybe they're people he would have loved to collaborate with. And here's an opportunity. Mm-hmm. You bring in five people, vocalist, drummer, three instrumentalists. Uh, each of those people, you say, here's the temp- here's the aesthetic map. Here are all the assets. Go create five versions of this stem for me. Five vocal versions, five drum versions, five instrumental versions, and get it back to me. So everything, going, going back to NFTs, mm-hmm. a way to encapsulate ownership, right? This will all come around in a second. So each of those stems are encapsulated as an NFT with that owner, that creator, owning the whole piece of that pie. Mm-hmm. So me as a creator, if I'm one of the five Tim's, I'm totally comfortable with that. Number one, I'm comfortable with Tim. Number two, there's this technology that anything I create and send, all the money is going to be pointed back to me. So two things we have, we have a library of 25 stems that are super interesting that mm-hmm. people could license if they want to. You know, mm-hmm. Tom McDonald licensed an Eminem drum beat, made a song with it. 
as an NFT and it was tied back to Eminem as an owner. So he's getting paid on every time it's outside of the label system, which mm. is really interesting. So now Dave, the super fan comes in, super fan of Tim Huffman, his new VIP experience is going to be the ability to select a unique combination of those five uh, things, a unique vocal, a unique drum, unique three instrumentals. You select those, you audition them. You're like, this is pretty rad. Mm -hmm. And you mint that, it's called minting it as an NFT, which locks all that combination in on the blockchain mm -hmm. as a new piece. All of the ownership details are back to the five collaborators or back to Tim. You get a 1% piece because you've selected the combination. Right. And that combination is totally removed from the possibilities of anyone else minting that unique combination. You own that, Tim owns that. Right. So that's, that's a way like new technology can bring participation from the fan end, but also protecting the rights of the creators. So one, one way to look at it. What's cool to me about that, just hearing that is, I don't have to be the artist. I don't have the ability to play those instruments or to sing the song, but I already know because I'm familiar with Tim, that he plays in things, his stylistically are things that are in a groove that I generally like. I like the voice sound, I like whatever. And so now I can mix and match. And so now I'm eager to participate and I get the opportunity to take that and put my style on it and play it. There's, um, in a weird way, it reminds me of, do you know the guitarist? I think his name's Andy McKee. Did you hear what he did for Prince? So Prince, he just did Andy McKee. He's with Candy Rat or something like that studio old, from 15 years ago. Amazing guitarist. He played his version of Purple Rain. Prince calls him up one day, <laughs> hears about it it's on YouTube and says, hey, man, it's Prince. So Andy hangs up on him. Prince doesn't call people. Come on. <laughs> Story. Calls him back. They get connected. And Andy is a super fan of Prince. Ultimately, he gets to go on. Prince takes him to Australia. They do a tour. And he said, just play your version of that. Andy, though, said that Prince was one of the greatest improv, um, improv, improvision, what am I trying to say, improv people that he's ever heard. He's been around a lot of great people, master multiple instruments. But he could keep it to your point about those maps. He would stay within the beat. He would stay within the thing. But he would do a version of each of those. And then I, as a fan, could come along and say, I want this of this and this of this. And they fit. They all snap together like Legos. It's Tim's job as a music director to make sure. Sure, that all goes together. And he said, as a super fan of Prince's, you know, I can't get out of my swim lane. Tim, I'm not going to tell – one day Tim uh, has some artists at his house or at his studio. He used to have a studio, I think, in Alpharetta or somewhere. And I was like, oh, did so-and-so, I'm not going to name them, play this or play that? And he said, no, 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 no. Those people can crush their songs, and they're pretty good in their swim lane. They don't leave it. They don't read music, many of them. They can't, they can't get out of it. Um, but what Tim can do, I think, is play pretty much anything with anybody. And so to be able to kind of put together, oh, you need a vibe that sounds like this. You need a vibe that can jump from Cutlass to Rush to the Stones to uh, Alicia Keys to whatever. I can, I can do those things. And I would love to be able to come along in that swim lane and take that together and snap it together. But then tell me, how do I protect it? So that it's mine. So if you're a non-technologist, half of our audience at least is business non-technologist. When you say this NFT, how do I make sure that you're mentioning blockchain, which is a ledger system, 
that's uniquely me. And I'm not going to get ripped off if I express this in the world. You know, like my wage, uh, we're all going to be rewarded for our work. So how does that work? Yeah, so you, you spend the time on the front end to design the, the ownership parameters, the interaction parameters, how is it going to be used. You, tr- you feed the system to automate it, right? Okay. So it makes it really easy for that asset to do different things, to, to be in different soup buckets, to, to get used in different ways. But it's all contractually kind of automated, smart contract. So it's all technology and tools. So when we talk about blockchain, famously people know blockchain through um, cryptocurrency. Mm-hmm. This particular thing that we're describing, this final product, when it's all said and done, the 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 tool, the software program, is going to put assemble it in such a way that it what can't be duplicated, can't be. It's uniquely yours, and you can distribute it to who and where you want, and retract it how you want. How does that work? So the duplication piece is tough, right? Right. You could just like with a JPEG, you can you know right click, save as, and right. know, whatever, right? You can do that really with any file that's downloaded, right? But if you try to monetize that or try to assert that you're in control to make decisions over same gotcha. and monetization of that, right. that's where, that's where it, it kind of protects you. Okay. So if I try to upload that to one of the established standard platforms, they're going to want to validate, you've got the ownership of this to do that. And if you don't, um, the technology, the algorithm will say, boop, nope, you're not allowed. And, and maybe in the smart contract, maybe, maybe you get 1% ownership in that song or 1% of the royalties right. in that song because you put the Legos to right. it, right? But you don't necessarily have what they call administrative permission to right. the song, right? So you couldn't go to Tim, the, the famous film producer, and say, Tim, I got this great song. I want, I want you to place it in your movie. Right. You don't have the rights to do that, just like I don't have the rights to blown and win. Right, that, right. right. And, I, and I don't have the right to take a... Um, you know, another piece of art necessarily and go put it as a placement in something. Um, right. I have anyway, um, how, what do you think about that idea? Have you given that I any thought? Jeremy's doing, and I think it would be innovative. Um, I mean, when I look at four or five changes that have happened, you know, in the last two decades with music, one being you, you've got, you know, content that gets created and then you you've got a distribution framework for performance in radio so when clear channel bought up all the radio stations a bunch of them they had a bit of a monopoly and then they said oh we're going to buy up venues if you want to play the rainbow music hall in denver city that's one of them so then they had if jeremy's the artist and he wants to get on the clear channel playlist he's got to play in their venue Mm. And so then it got even weirder because Ticketmaster was was in the in the mix with it. And so mm. you might remember Pearl Jam saying we're not going to do Ticketmaster. Right. So you got the selling of the ticket and processing, the venue owner, and the controller of the airwaves all kind of coming together. And then it it morphed and got bought out and policed by um, the government. And then came Live Nation. You know, to kind of take pick up some of those um, pieces and then guarantee you as an artist a number to go on a tour. Um, 
I mean, there's one I left out in there. It was really Jobs, Steve Jobs, just going, hey, you record company's got your own online stores, but you only sell your stuff. If I did it and we standardized the price at 99 cents, oh, by the way, you got to use my device to hear it. It's a perfect little universe that helped unravel. We used to have 40 big labels. Now you got to get through. Right. So those are some ebb and flow big moments. The thing Jeremy's talking about, I think, could be a really cool big moment where a fan has a sense of participation in a process, even if they're. One idea I had, Jeremy, was if the fan had those five layers and then the fan picks and chooses and creates their own little thing, they can't really go monetize it per se, but they, hey, did you hear the way I did it? With they, The way I made, made my mix work. That could be an add-on sale opportunity with the stems on a record, I guess. Right? Well, th yeah, think about this, right? So think about the, the one that Dave mints, the unique combination of, of stems of yours that Dave mints. And you and your five collaborators, you know, out of all of the possible combinations, I already did the math. I'm pretty sure it's 3,125 <laughs> different. We'll take your word for it. Different versions of that song. Um, and, you know, out of out of that number that all get minted, let's just say all of them get minted. You and the band get together and go, let's pick the best three. And then the best three, you could do a live event. You could have Dave on stage and you guys could talk about how you made the choice. You could have it press directly to vinyl and partner with someone like Vinyl Me Please, and it goes automatically to, I mean, there are all kinds of really cool extensions that, I mean, you hit the nail on the head to, to kind of expand on all that. This is Jeremy's Bitcoin music idea, I love it. <laughs> I do I too, I, you know, since I tend to be an optimist, I'll, I'll ask you guys where, whether it's this idea if or, or others, if you're an artist, Intent, whether you're uh, an instrumentalist or a vocalist or some combination of those or in a band, are you pretty excited for the future that's open to them as opposed to, say, you know, 30 years ago, here was the path? It seems like there's a lot of opportunity today to create and still be rewarded for it. What do you think? I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> Wait, what was the question? No, I'm totally messing. So if it's, uh, if it's 1971, no, 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 76, 78, whenever you're out there and you're uh, touring around Illinois and whatever, if you were to start that today um, on this journey, do you think the opportunities would be um, as much for you to be successful today or not, not just that they're different, but the opportunity yeah. would be successful for you today and make a career of it, or we lost something. It seems like there might be opportunity for more people to make a decent living, but for fewer people to make a significant living. Okay. Just the way that it's all designed. And, and that's good, I guess, you know. Right. But for a, a, a touring group to have a regional following and then do their stuff, I mean, that's how Zach Brown started. He just worked his butt off local, regional owned his masters, did his thing. I think today is a good, there, there's a, a living wage mm -hmm. that could be achieved for a smart musician. It's just hard to be smart musically and creatively and then be smart business-wise. And at that level, you typically don't have a manager, you know, so um, 
Yeah, you're asking yourself to be perfect at three things. It's like, it's crazy. Yeah. It's amazing anybody does it for a living, you know. And my experience is with most artists, you two are exceptions. They are not detailed people. They are meticulous with their vocal or their playing or their passion or whatever. In general, I'm just generalizing, but to be meticulously detailed in all of those um, areas is a rare thing and uncommon. It's, it's, it's that old adage of the cartoon you've just probably seen where, what is a musician? A musician is a person that puts $5,000 of equipment in a car that costs them 500 bucks so they can go make $50 on a gig. Yeah. It, it's just, people love what they do and they players want to play. Yeah. Yeah, I think to, to answer your question on the opportunity and what you what you know what we see is 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 good or beneficial for the artist. I would agree with you, Tim, on on the idea of like we were talking about earlier, like less moonshots but more opportunity across the board in, in general of making a decent living, right? Um, I think just decentralization is a powerful uh, philosophy in general when you look at a really old system and a really old industry that people are already starting to question but there's no incentive to change from within. Mm -hmm. Change has to come from the outside mm -hmm. where it's like, oh, maybe that does make sense. So I think the opportunity to drive change from the outside through technologies like we talked about today, we are on the cusp of something like pretty powerful, I think. Well, that seems like that's a pretty good spot to wrap it up. Jeremy, Where, uh, if people want to learn more, because you're hot and heavy in building this now or participating in this conversation, if they want to find out more about you, where can they find you at? Uh, usually uh, on, what is it, Tuesdays at 5.30, Tim and I are uh, in the guitar <laughs> closet. He's teaching me. Uh, uh, we're, we're doing uh, 251 jazz turnarounds, I think, this week. So uh, I'll be there. Perfect. Uh, outside of that, I mean, you can, uh, social media, you can grab me at Jeremy Gilby, pretty much everything across the way. And I've been recently um, posting a lot of these thoughts uh, on a blog that I have called um, On the Chain, mm. uh, Thoughts on Music and the Metaverse. I appreciate it. Tim, if folks want to catch up with you, where are they going to catch up with you at? I suck at social media. I'm just going to confess. So just email. All right. Yeah. 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 Uh, usually kick back in some kind of comfy chair with some dirty water in one hand and a stogie in the other. Been there, done that. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining me today. I really appreciate it. And um, thanks for the conversation. Uh, my great pleasure. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, please like, subscribe, share, and comment. We'll see you next time on the QTS Experience. Thanks, everybody.